Ladies and gents, while I am working on the next Conflict of Nations episode, which will be the interwar period between World War I and World War II, I thought it was fitting to re-release an episode that I released a little while ago about the industrialization of warfare so we can have an understanding of why these conflicts were so destructive. Well, I recorded and released this episode while I was just starting to learn about how to use sound effects and things like that. So that is a little, I go a little bit overboard on this one, but it was a lot of fun. So uh, enjoy the episode and I look forward to seeing you again for Conflict of Nations Part 7, which is the interwar period. A quick disclaimer before we begin, this episode does contain the sounds of war from conflicts ranging from the Civil War, the American Civil War, to World War II, and some listeners may find those sounds to be triggering or disturbing to mental illnesses such as post-traumatic stress disorder or schizophrenia. Listener discretion is advised. It is late October of 1917 in eastern France. Beneath a sea of smoke, toxic chlorine gas, an alien landscape riddled with thousands of craters made by artillery shells, you are cowering in a hastily dug trench, knee-deep in muddy water and chilled to the bone. You have not slept, eaten, or left your post in days. The commanders always tell you that an attack is imminent, but no attack ever comes. For weeks you've heard nothing but the cries of dying men and the whistle and detonation of artillery all around you. You have not seen or heard from your loved ones in months, as supply lines have been strained due to demand, and the mail has been difficult to track. For all you know, they think you're dead. In the distance, you hear a familiar sound. It rises like a large ocean wave, and you can feel it, all ready to crest and bear down on you. Your friends shout and make themselves as small as possible as the anxiety such a sound brings clutches your heart in an iron grasp, and you take one last look at the ruins of a village you had been sworn to protect as the whistling of artillery rises to a fever pitch. You take one last look at the village of Passchendaele. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. We are following our format here today, and today our episode is about war. If you hadn't already been able to tell, that's what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the industrialization of warfare. Sounds kind of boring, but we got a lot of facts we're going to get through today. We've got a lot to get through, so we are just going to get right started. First of all, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave drop a, drop a like and a review. It really hel- helps us to get people more involved with the conversations about history. And uh, to be totally honest, if you listen to this podcast, you'll get enough information to be able to argue with people about stuff that now you know how to talk about. I think that's a good reason to listen to this podcast. So anyway, let's get right started into this. So, 
The industrialization of warfare in the 19th and 20th centuries, so the uh, 1800s and 1900s, the global military ecosystem experienced some of the greatest and most horrific conflicts in human history, from the American Civil War to the Franco-Prussian War, the Crimean War, the Balkan Wars, the Russian Revolution, and the consequential Civil War, the Korean War, the war in Vietnam, and obviously World War I and World War II, among dozens of others that have fallen under the radar and become lost to history. So something interesting to note is this transition and acceleration of warfare from the 17th and 18th centuries to the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm going to quickly lay out some statistics for you so you can have a general idea of the acceleration that I'm referring to. So pay attention to the death tolls of each conflict. It's going to get a little bit morbid for a second, but really pay attention to these because this is what I'm getting at. We're going to begin at the American Revolution, which set off a period known as the Worldwide Revolutionary Period. And this ended up uh, resulting in over 100,000 deaths fought from 1775 to 1783. So that's 100,000 deaths during the American Revolutionary War. The French Revolution and the ensuing conflicts during the 1780s and 1790s resulted in around 200,000 deaths in a 10-year period. From 1803 to 1815, a period of 12 years, the French Emperor Napoleon fought a series of wars against pretty much every other country in Europe and even into Africa and the Middle East. And the human cost of these wars was staggering, with Napoleon's conquests resulting in the deaths of at least 5 million soldiers and civilians. In the War of 1812, Britain and the United States called for a rematch of the American Revolution, which resulted more or less in a stalemate. Though Britain had Spain hurried to its aid, it wasn't enough to break the spirit of the Americans, and the conflict resulted in another 30,000 lives lost in a three-year period. The Crimean War was a conflict fought between 1853 and 1856 when Russia squared off against Britain, France, Italy, and the Ottoman Empire, and it was one of the more bloody conflicts of the 19th century, a human cost of almost 500,000. When the United States fractured into two separate nations, the United States of America and the Confederate States of America, the ensuing conflict was one of the bloodiest conflicts ever to take place in a single country and only lasted four years from 1861 to 1865, but the human cost amounted to between 600,000 and 1 million lives. When the two Balkan Wars broke out between the Ottomans, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Albania, Montenegro, Greece, and Serbia between 1912 and 1913, the death toll amounted to 300,000 and less than a year of fighting. And then World War I arrived with full force, causing 20 million or more human deaths. World War II blew it all out of the water, with a staggering human cost of 85 million lives. Now, all of these wars preceded the two greatest conflicts in human history, and yet how did these wars become so destructive in such a short time? So World War I and World War II were fought in a relatively short period of time for the amount of deaths that they cost. So there's an obvious rise in human deaths in the conflicts that precede World War I and World War II, but really nothing could have prepared the world for these two wars. And how did so many people die? So to understand how warfare changed over time, we've got to go all the way back to the 1500s. And if you're listening to this podcast, my assumption is that you have a basic understanding of human history and of warfare. And you know that prior to the year 1500, wars were fought pretty exclusively as hand-to-hand -hand combat, with the exceptions of archers and some cannons and things like that. 
But the invention of the flintlock rifle in, in around 1411 had given way to the flintlock musket by 1550, and the development of the rifle increased as the Seven Years' War came around in the 1700s. At this point, in the 1700s, the mid-1700s, entire armies had given up swords for rifles, and warfare had changed from a close encounter to arranged affair, with most units being given in the amount of muskets and other rifles needed to go toe-to-toe -to -toe in an open field with an equally powerful and equally equipped enemy, and to do that, they needed a lot of guns. Are you following me? Basically, what I'm saying is we needed a way to make a lot of guns. So how did they get those guns? Well, muskets weren't made by machines yet. At this point, they were made by hand. So average Joes in the countryside began manufacturing hunting rifles and military-grade muskets as often as they could, which the governing body over their territorial, provincial, state, or federal government would purchase from them. Over time, groups of these average Joes would band together and start a business of manufacturing muskets, in places called, obviously, musket manufactories. And as the demand for firearms increased, so did the lucrative nature of the trade, and thus spelled a firearms boom of the 1800s, fueled by something we lovingly refer to as the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> Definition time! What is the Industrial Revolution? Well, the Industrial Revolution, now known as the First Industrial Revolution, was the transition to new manufacturing processes in Europe and the United States in the period from about 1760 to sometime between 1820 and 1840-ish. This transition included going from hand production methods to machine production, new chemical manufacturing and iron production processes, the increasing use of steam power and water power, the development of machine tools, and the rise of the mechanized factory system. You got all that? It's okay, it's not that big of a deal if you didn't. You just need a general idea. The Industrial Revolution also led to an unprecedented rise in the rate of population growth. Basically, with the Industrial Revolution, machines were created that enhanced the growth of arms manufacturing exponentially. Consequentially, they could be sold in mass quantities, making them cheaper to purchase in bulk, which made it possible for countries to hire more soldiers and mercenaries to fight for them with the funds they saved on guns. And this is first witnessed on a massive scale in the 1800s. The 1800s had some great conflicts. I don't say great like, woohoo, I mean great like they were big conflicts. I mean, such as the previously referenced Napoleonic Wars, and the American Civil War, the Crimean War, the Franco-Prussian War, the list goes on. And people needed guns to fight these wars. The smaller wars of the 1600s and 1700s, which consisted of 50,000 combatants on the field at once, at most, had given way to these massive clashes between many nations on the European continent. At the Battle of Leipzig in 1813, Napoleon and his few remaining allies crossed swords with a coalition of European powers, both colossal armies, ultimately feeling a total of over half a million soldiers. It was a level of combat that had not been seen since the Industrial Revolution, but the scale had been witnessed before. In 547 BC, Cyrus the Great led a Persian army of over 200,000 to a stunning victory over a force twice their size, but casualties had remained relatively light. 
at the Battle of Leipzig, perhaps Leipzig, I'm not really sure how to say that, with 100,000 less troops on the field, over 90,000 soldiers lost their lives over a four-day period. 20% of combatants died. So what changed? Well, obviously weapons changed, and the mortality rate of the wounds they inflicted rose pretty significantly. A stab wound can be sewn up, or even the human body itself can fix the damage sometimes, but a bullet wound is harder to treat, especially if the bullet doesn't have an exit wound. In the 1800s, military doctors often lacked the equipment necessary to safely remove a bullet from a wound, and many soldiers were often left untreated, given morphine, and basically left, left to die. The instruments built to end lives had far outpaced the instruments built to save them, and this was becoming apparent on the battlefield. The Napoleonic Wars represented the beginning of a significant shift in the ideologies of war, all surrounding a concept called total war. Two definitions in one episode, Tanner, what are you doing? Well, I'm having fun. So the definition of total war is, uh, as opposed to limited war, Total war is a term used to describe warfare that mobilizes all of the resources of society to fight the war, including any and all civilian-associated resources and infrastructure, and gives priority to what the state requires for warfare over the needs of non-combatants. Before Napoleon established the way that he thought war should be fought, war was a bit of a novelty for countries to participate in. Countries, kingdoms, or principalities would often gather a large group of soldiers, meet at a designated location, and settle their dispute. Before the troops went off to battle, there would be a large celebration and parade, and with their people sending off to glorious battle, and the same sort of celebration would welcome them home. Leaders would go out and meet on the field before the battle was happening to discuss the terms of victory and the rules that would be abided by. It was, in a way, pretty civil. Napoleon decided he was going to change that. He had fought during the French Revolutionary Wars in the 1790s when mass conscription had been introduced for the first time, and he saw the effects it had on the sheer numbers in the French military. He decided to take it to the next level in his conquests of, you know, basically all of mainland Europe. And as his empire grew, he decided to pull new soldiers from the principalities he had conquered, eventually summoning the might of his Grande Armée numbering almost 700,000 strong, which he intended to use to conquer Russia. I mean, if you know the story, he didn't conquer Russia, but that's a story for another time. It is important to understand Napoleon's tactics in mustering such an army because it is integral to the understanding why warfare advanced to such an industrial level. Napoleon did away with the old adage that war was there, but it was in a far-off battlefield, and we don't have to worry about it. Instead, he adopted the mentality that in order to win a war, everything in the nation had to be allocated to the war effort. Napoleon stated, this is a quote, From this moment until such time as its enemies shall have been driven from the soil of the Republic, all Frenchmen are in permanent requisition for the services of the armies. The young men shall fight. The married men shall forge arms and transport provisions. The women shall make tents and clothes and shall serve in the hospitals. The children shall turn old lint into linen. The old men shall betake themselves to the public squares in order to arouse the courage of the warriors and preach hatred of kings and the unity of the republic. The war was no longer something on an isolated battlefield. The war was everything, and all resources were to be allocated to the war effort. 
And this mentality expanded across the nations of the world as the American Civil War ravaged the United States and the Franco-Prussian War tore across Germany and France. So we now understand total war. We've gotten through that. But it still doesn't exactly explain why the death tolls of the First and Second World Wars amounted to what they did. So now I'm going to. Following the Franco-Prussian War, Western Europe saw a period of peace that lasted about 40 years. Despite minor insurrections, economic prosperity and trade flourished in the region as the birth rate replenished the lives lost in the series of wars fought in the early to mid-1800s. While conflicts and tensions continued in the Balkan states, which is, you know, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, that area, Western Europe decided instead to focus on economic prosperity and finally fully capitalize on the Industrial Revolution. By the near 1900, enough factories had been built in Europe to control 62% of all world manufacturing output, compared to 28% in the year 1800. Huge industrial centers were cranking out all types of products, mainly textiles and steel, and the population growth was staggering. So what did that mean when everyone decided to declare war on everyone in August of 1914? I mean, you've got nearly unsustainable population growth, an explosion of factory industry in Europe, but there's one more piece to the puzzle that we haven't discussed yet, and that is the development of military technology between 1870 and 1914. And among these inventions were the modern machine gun, barbed wire, improvements to trench warfare, repeating rifles that replaced the single-fire muskets, and the deadliest weapon of all, explosive artillery shells. And you gotta add to this, a collection of interconnected alliances all predicated on the agreement that if one goes to war, we all go to war. And this is where things get really nasty. All the pieces we've covered so far have led to the greatest storm of all. The Great War. We have the perfect storm here. The adoption of total war policies, including mass conscription, the industrialization of nations, exploding populations, and a series of war pacts that dictate aid in the event of war. So, in July of 1914, with war on the horizon, these factories immediately switched gears for the war effort. Textile mills stopped producing civilian clothes and started producing military uniforms. Steel mills started forging huge field guns in the thousands. Other factories immediately began building bullets, artillery shells, boots, helmets, anything else the war needed. The concept of total war once again gripped the whole of Europe, as nations mobilized their entire civilian population to contribute to the conflict, all expecting a quick victory. But unfortunately, it wasn't going to be that easy. A four-year bloody stalemate was, instead, what was to come. The invention of machine guns paired with barbed wire and trenches made attacks almost obsolete, but not for the lack of trying. Wave after wave after wave of soldiers mounted trenches and ran across open fields for sometimes miles at a time under a hail of machine gun fire and roar of artillery. As that artillery became more prevalent on the battlefield, it became a staple of the First World War due to the inefficiency of frontal assaults and clearing trenches. Artillery was an imperfect science, and it was classified as indirect artillery. They could fire into a general area, but definitely couldn't aim for a small bunker two miles away. To counter this flaw in design, commanders instead would put 10, 
20, 100, or even 1,000 artillery pieces in one place to fire on the same target. I mean, odds are one of them was going to hit it. In preparation for large-scale attacks such as the British attack on the Somme or the German attack at Verdun, a method known as a creeping barrage would be used where artillery would fire several rounds before aiming further down the field, either pushing the enemy back or wiping out any who decided to stay. Before the British attack on the Somme, 1,000 artillery guns shelled the German lines for four days before the soldiers went over the top. First-hand accounts say that there were so many guns firing that it didn't even sound like artillery, just a big rolling wave of explosions. I was able to dig up some audio of a barrage such as this, and I'm going to play it for you now. It's really intense, and I am going to ease you into it just a little bit, but this is just a disclaimer. I'm going to play the effect for about 30 seconds. Listen to that for 30 seconds. Imagine listening to it for four days. This was the reality of industrial warfare. No longer were these far-off battles fought by noble men who were built for war and decided to go there. This was death on a massive scale, being suffered and perpetrated by people who had been sucked into a conflict they had no stock in, with machines built for no reason other than to extinguish human life as quickly and efficiently as possible. Combine that with the adverse weather conditions of places like eastern France, and you get the horrific, surreal, nightmarish imagery seen when you Google the Battle of Passchendaele. Really, Google it if you get the chance. You'll see what I mean. Or use Bing, whichever you prefer. These brutal tactics were only exacerbated at the breakout of World War II, except now, planes were a more prominent fixture on the battlefield, and they made for exceptional killing machines being able to drop bombs on cities deep behind enemy lines. And this added a whole new element to the industrialization of warfare, which was deliberate attacks on civilian targets. And this would take place famously at places like Dresden, Tokyo, London, Coventry, Stalingrad, Berlin, and a host of other cities, costing millions of civilian lives. Luckily, post-World War II, we haven't really seen the brutality of industrialized warfare witnessed during, the, during war again, and I hope we never have to. Today, private companies produce most of the weapons of war used by the major players of the world, and it's likely to stay that way for a while unless World War III breaks out. Armies are well-trained and tasked with specific operations instead of sending waves and waves and waves and waves of human bodies at a target hoping they break through. We've traded quantity for quality, and done away with conscription almost entirely, with notable exceptions such as South Korea and Switzerland, likely saving countless lives. I mean, we can only really hope that it stays that way. 
And that is the episode. Thank you all for tuning in today. This was a really interesting episode to do. I did a lot of work on it. Like I said, I'm still working on all these sound effects. I'm getting used to the concept of using them and getting used to the mechanics and fade ins, fade outs, all that fun stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm getting used to it and I'm, I'm really am having a lot of fun with it. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. Leave me five stars if you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is important to get people involved with the conversations about history and so we can learn about where we came from and where we're going and why all of these things fit together the way that they do. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I will see you all next week. And until then, catch you later. This is Tanner with Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, and I'm signing off for the night.